Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family. Today, we're going to be talking about parenting tweens and teens, or as somebody told me ahead of time, they said, you mean the dreaded tweens and teens? But actually, I love that age group, and I am so looking forward to talking with Dr. Ken Ginsberg today. He is the co-founder and director of the programs at the Center for Parent and Teen Communication, and professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He travels the world speaking to parents, professionals, as well as youth, and is the author of five award-winning parenting books and the Multimedia Interdisciplinary Professional Toolkit on Reaching Teens. Welcome back, Dr. Ginsberg, to Creating a Family. We are so thankful to, to have your time today because this is a topic I, I love to talk about. I'm thrilled to be here, Dawn. Thank you for uh, giving me this honor. All right, let's let's jump in. First of all, I, you know, do you see it as well as I that that people? I mean, even we're talking with families who are starting off oftentimes with young children, and they're already dreading the teen years. Uh, it seems to be almost universal in our society. Do you see that as well? I see it, and I wanted to tell you it's a big problem. I agree. <laughs> it's it's a huge problem. You know, when you have uh, a child and they're 11 years old and you're standing in the grocery store line and uh, they're having their head on your shoulder and the person behind you in line says, hang on tight. She's going to become a monster you may not recognize and won't like. Get those hugs while you can. This is poison. This is poison to the kid who's hearing that message and who's learning in order to be normal, I need to be difficult. Yes. And gone, it's poison to the parent. Yes. Because we have to know how much we matter, how much of a difference we make. And if you hear all of these undermining messages and you approach this time as a time of dread, then you're going to disempower yourself from being so deeply effective with your child. If I could give you a standing ovation, I would do that right now. I could not agree with you more. This, the tween and teen years are just great. And you, you get to see the, the, the adult and the human, the, the adult that your child is growing into. Their minds are so interesting. They're, they're making connections. Your relationship can deepen. And quite frankly, they're, they're a whole lot of fun. So I just, I, I totally agree with you. Um, so how does puberty impact our, the way our children think and behave? I, I mean that both on the, the physical as well as the emotional level. Well, let's really first tie this together emotionally to the thread we were already talking about. So when puberty happens, what is happening is that a young person is receiving a message that says, I'm going to need to fly out of this nest. That's the message. I have to prepare myself to fly away from the nest. And what that means is that even if you've made a warm, comfortable, feathery uh, nest for that child, that child has to begin seeing it as prickly. And they have to, even if you've given that child everything that that child needs, that child has to begin imagining life without you and become embarrassed by the way you breathe. Right? <laughs> when that child is ready to fly, then what happens is that child has to look at that nest and for a moment, imagine it, or a year or two actually, imagine it as uninhabitable. 
otherwise they would never fly. So this really ties into our first point. Do tweens and teens sometimes cause us challenges, even heartaches? Yes, but it's because of their developmental need to be ready to go out on their own. And sometimes they push you away, not because they don't care about you, but because they care about you or love you so much that it hurts. And so they push you away to imagine doing things on their own. So that is spiritually a really important way to approach some of these difficulties. Now let's go a little deeper in what's happening in the brain. So there's two parts of the brain that are evolving very rapidly. There's the emotional centers of the brain and there's the thinking centers of the brain. They are both developing incredibly well, but the emotional centers are particularly brilliant and developing just a tad quicker than the other centers. This is really important to know because the emotionality of adolescence is a sign of good, healthy development. And knowing this, teaches us how to communicate with adolescents because our tone, how we approach adolescents makes a difference to which part of their brain we are talking to. And their emotional brain is so brilliant that if you come off angry or condescending or talk in a way that they don't understand, their brilliant emotional centers go off and dominate and they're unable to think to plan or to reason. But when we are loving and we are calm and we communicate safety and respect, then their emotional centers are feeling good rather than feeling danger, danger, danger. And then their emotional centers are centered, are calm, and you can work with your kid and your 14 year old can think at the same level as an adult. So understanding the adolescent brain actually guides us how to communicate with that young person. So in keeping that in mind, how does our parenting need to change as our children reach adolescence? Well, we need to be respectful of their increasing need for independence. We have to be respectful of the fact that adolescents are super learners meaning that their brains are literally designed to gather in as many experiences as they can, as rapidly as they can, because they will never again learn as much as they can during adolescence. What that means is that they are natural experimenters and um, uh, they will naturally test their limits. Why? Because new knowledge exists at the end of their current limits. So they are designed to do this. So how do we parent? If we are overly controlling and prevent them from experimenting, you are literally preventing them from building their intelligence and their life experience that's going to catch them through the rest of, or take them through the rest of their lives. Instead, what we do is we both enrich their lives and assure safety. So let's talk about safety. Yeah. The first thing is very clear boundaries, very clear boundaries. You may experiment to this point. You may not go into unsafe or immoral territory. Very clear boundaries. Kids might act like they don't like it, but they love it because it gives them a sense that they're cared for and about, and they know what territory is safe for them to experiment. What else do we do? 
we look at those borders where they're expanding into and we create rich opportunities for them, rich golden opportunities for their brains to develop and for them to have new experiences. And when you create those opportunities, whether it's school or going out for a play or a new relationship or stretching in any way, then kids stop exactly there because they're satisfied. Their brains are satisfied. When we do not create clear boundaries, they keep going into risky territory. And when we do not create enriching opportunities, they keep going into risky territory because they're not satisfied. In other words, Don, in one sentence, experimentation is a natural and vital part of adolescence. When we support it, it builds healthy young people. When we do not support it through safety and nurturance, that is where risk happens. Risk happens when adults don't do their job. But sometimes it's not clear where the boundaries should be, because some of the things that are fearful for parents may or may not be something. How do we know where we should be drawing our lines? It's not always crystal clear, particularly in the time we're living now with, you know, with electronics and and social media and things like that. Parents sometimes don't know where to draw the line and and out of fear, they're fearful that they may be drawing it too far out or too far in. Yeah, so Don, thank you for pointing that out because, you know, it's so easy to kind of give an answer that looks great on a page, but that's hard to put into reality. The truth is, this is hard, hard work and you have to be really intentional. And it is the reason why at the Center for Parent and Teen Communication, we don't give you recipes. We tell you how to communicate openly with your kid. Because you know what, Don? Who is going to be the best person at helping you know what is safe and unsafe? You're going to know when you have really open communication with your kids. Let's go back 10 years ago. When we talked about monitoring our kids, we spoke in very simple language. We said, parents, you're the anti-drug. Ask your kid where they're going, who they're going to be with, what they're going to do. Will there be adults home? It was all the questions. Who, what, when, where, why? You no longer see this in any public health messaging or in any books that are really up to date in what we know. Why? Because it didn't work. Because kids lied. When (laughs) you just asked questions, kids lied. What we now understand is that what allows us to really monitor our kids safely is to have young people who choose to disclose information to us. And that is about our relationships and how we parent, which is why I could continue to answer this question if you want to keep going and say, well, what do you do to make your kid more likely to disclose? Want me to well, go there? Yeah. Well, yes, actually very much. That's exactly where I want you to go. <laughs> so the first thing is be a balanced parent, right? So what does that mean? If you're the kind of parent who, you know, balancing is about both showing that you are loving and caring and warm and having clear rules and boundaries, right? So if you just have clear rules and boundaries and you're a Don't do that, why? Because I said so, parent. Mm -hmm. Kids go behind your back. We know this, we absolutely know this. 
And if you are a parent who says, I love you so much, I trust you, do what you want, kids also go behind your back and they choose not to tell you what's going on in their life. What kids, and if you're a parent who says, kids will be kids, I figured it out, they'll figure it out, kids don't even begin to come to you. Who do they go to? They go to the parents with a, ba a balanced parenting style. A parent who says, I love you so much. I'm going to role model for you. I'm going to teach you and I'm going to let you make mistakes. You're going to learn to fall down and I'm going to pick you back up. But for the things that really matter, you will do what I say because my job is to keep you safe and to make sure you're a good person. That is a balanced parenting style. We know for a fact that kids are most likely to talk to parents who have that balanced parenting style. And kids are less likely to do drugs and to have early sex and to be engaged in violence and bullying, to be safer drivers, to have less depression, less anxiety, to do better in school. That parenting style, which we describe in depth on our website, how to get there, um, is absolutely known to be most effective. That's point number one. Okay. Point number two is be the kind of parent that avoids drama and jumping in. Be the kind of parent who listens, right? Who's the sounding board. Because when you listen, kids will keep talking. If you do the parent's alarm, like, you know, mom, I met this um, girl. Uh, you're too young to date. Mom, my friend's doing drugs. Don't ever talk to Paul again, right? If you have that parent alarm, kids stop talking. When we are super judgy and try to problem solve too quickly, kids stop talking. When we listen and we trust that kids will just want a listening ear and will work things out on their own, they keep talking. Now, when you have this kind of a relationship with your kid, then you can ask the question you asked me, Don. You started out by asking me, how do you know where the boundaries are? And my answer is, I don't know you. I don't know your kid. I don't know your community. It's not that clear, but with mm -hmm. open communication between you and your child within your home and your community, you can help to figure it out. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems like so much of the basis goes back to your communication style with your, uh, with your teen. What are, some, um, what are some communication tips that parents can, can try to implement that will help them be more balanced and better listeners. Right. So I already tried to give you kind of the most important ones, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is not reacting, mm -hmm. um, listening, trying to remain calm, trying to be a co-regulator with your kid. What do I mean by that? Yeah. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. If you're on a plane and there's turbulence and you think you're going to die, you don't turn to the guy sitting next to you with the white knuckles. You look at the flight attendant. And if she is still serving snack mix, you're gonna, you know you're going to be okay. We you must have sat near me on an airplane because that's exactly what I do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We all do. So we all borrow and lend each other emotions. Kids like parents who are calm. Why? You don't want to just look like the duck gliding on the water because that doesn't look real. 
if you want to really be influential in your in your young person's life, let them know that the reason you're gliding on the water is because your little feet are underneath paddling like crazy, right? <laughs> that it's really hard work to um, learn to navigate the world. Show them how you are working. Model for them how to be a good person and how intentional you are. That's another major point. Yeah, and now, let me give you one that sort of on first glance makes parents crazy. So you have to listen to it and then you have to listen deeper to my advice. All right. Okay. And this is all research based. So some kids like to argue and some kids don't. And of course, it's easier to have a kid who doesn't argue. But the problem is the ones who aren't arguing with you, they're not testing their limits, they're not stretching, and you actually don't know what's going on. The kids who do argue with you, let them win sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's that the sense. part that's hard to hear, but why? Because if, a, if you have rules that say, these are my rules, they are inflexible, they will not change, why? Because I said so. Then your kid learns to go around your rules. But if your kid knows if, why you have the rules, it's that you care, that you want to protect them, that you love them, and that these rules are in place for those reasons, then what's going to happen is your young person is going to come to you and say, I've thought this through. You don't like me going out with people you don't know. That's why I'm going to introduce you to Johnny before we go on a date. You don't like to not know where I am. That's why you can track my cell phone. You don't, you worry about me not doing homework. That's why I'm going to do all my homework before I go out. And if they negotiate with you in this way, showing how thoughtful they've been in, you have to give in and say, okay, you've thought this through. I admire that. If you don't give in and they were negotiating over going out Saturday night, then on Thursday night, they're going to come to you and go, guess what? I'm sleeping over Rachel's. They'll lie to you instead of include you. So when someone that, you know, you know how Don, you began saying you loved adolescence. Mm -hmm. Part of what you love is, is this negotiation that Absolutely. they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. let, let them learn that negotiation and communication works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes that to me, that makes great sense. And I should probably add that there weren't every moment of my children's adolescence I didn't love. Okay, <laughs> just in you know full disclosure here, there were a few moments thinking back that 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 I could have done without. The um, yeah, just in case any of my kids are listening to this. The um, at the Center for Parenting Teen Communication, you talk about a strength-based philosophy. What do you mean by that? Seeing all that is good and right in a human being. That's what it means. It doesn't mean just praise, right? Like mm -hmm. just praise is not what I call strength-based communication. That's just praise and simple praise can backfire. But strength-based mm -hmm. communication is that even when you are talking about something that's difficult, even when you're correcting a young person for something that you wish they weren't doing, you're rooting it in all that is good and right in that person right? What is love, Don? Love is seeing someone as they deserve to be seen, as they really are, not based on the behavior they might be displaying, 
not based on a label they might have received. The most protective thing in a young person's life is to be seen, to be known in all of their goodness, because it gives them something to aspire to, to be their best selves. The best parents, kinship parents, foster parents, all parents, are the parents who actually see their kid, not just in their misbehaviors, but in their essential goodness. So when we see that, kids live up to that. And when they're not living up to the values you know they have, you're not condemning them based on their badness. You're explaining to them how to get back to their goodness. So if you are a, let's say your child has broken one of your firm rules or, or done something that, that uh, and we would say needs to have a consequence or needs to be disciplined, how to do that with teens? Because it, with younger children, we had a, a host of options. With our older kids, we don't. And so the temptation is to say, give me your phone. Uh, okay, I'm cutting off the internet, you know, or whatever. We we tend to react with taking things away, and maybe that's the 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 best thing to do. So, how do we discipline our kids, our teens, our tweens, our adolescents when they uh, when they aren't following the rules that we have set? So, let's start by remembering what the word discipline means, because if you remind yourself what the word discipline actually means, the answers become much clearer. Um, if you see discipline as punishment, you're going to fail with your adolescent, right? Because they're going to feel like victims when they're punished, right? Um, especially if the consequence doesn't fit the crime. So if we take away our phone from our kids, which is a pretty easy thing to do, but that has nothing to do with what they did wrong, then it makes no sense to them and they feel punished. They feel victimized and they rebel against you. Discipline shares the same root as the word disciple. It means to teach or to guide, ideally even in a loving way, right? And when we remember that, we always have to say to ourselves, does the consequence teach our child something? Do they understand that the consequence they have is something that they essentially earned based on something they did? So is taking your phone away an appropriate um, consequence. Yes, if the problem had something to do with the phone or maybe even time management, right? If you didn't get your homework done because you were doing social media on your phone all day, then it makes sense mm -hmm. to take away the phone for a period of time or to limit it. It's a situation that the kid has earned to learn the lesson. If they were texting inappropriately or involved in cyberbullying, it makes total sense to take the phone away. But if they were 15 minutes late coming from home and you were terrified because your mind was racing in those 15 minutes, taking the phone away, which takes away basically in 2020 people's social life, doesn't make sense. So discipline has to make sense. It has to be about teaching. The consequence has to fit the problem. That's how kids grow. And when they grow, it's real discipline. And the final point I want to make, Dawn, around this is that kids have to know that the discipline comes from a place of love and caring. 
and your desire that they grow and remain safe, right? Mm -hmm. And when you, so try to create consequences that take people back to a place of safety. For example, the kid was 15 minutes late and, and you were terribly worried about them, but when their curfew was half an hour early, they were never late, return them to where they succeeded. Don't ground them forever. Return to them where they proved they were able to be responsible. Make the curfew 8.45 again. Mm -hmm. And give them the opportunity and the knowledge of how then to, what they need to do to expand it once again. To expand it once again and to always let them know that they can regain your trust. Mm -hmm. The biggest mistake we can make in discipline is to have our children feel that we are so angry or so exasperated that we've given up on them. Mm -hmm. The worst thing you want is for your child to walk away saying, I have nothing to lose. I've already lost her. Mm -hmm. Because then they have nothing to come back to. This is, again, where strength-based communication comes down. I am giving you a consequence because your action puts you in danger. And I care about you too much to allow you to go in that territory. And you need to learn this lesson, mm -hmm. right? So you're not rejecting the child. You're rejecting the behavior. Mm -hmm. Always let them know you're still there. Mm -hmm. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Being Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J-B-F, then cap S for support. So J-B-F-S, that's all capitalized, then U-P-P-O-R-T. Uh, again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg, Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Hallowell, Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents, Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao, and Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash JBF support to get information on these courses. I know from having read a great deal of your work that you uh, are a big believer in, in, in character development. How do we how, first of all, how do you define character and, and what do you mean by that? And then how do we as parents, how can we help our kids become the, the great human beings that we know they are? You just define character, Dawn. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously, you just did it, right? Character is about being a good person. It's about what you would do if um, you thought nobody was looking, Right. Character is about caring about yourself, caring about your family, caring about your community, and caring about others. And we care about it tremendously because we want to build people's character strengths. Remember, Dawn, we're parenting the 35-year-old. Stop mm -hmm. looking at your 8-year-old and thinking, what are my goals for this 8-year-old? Because then you're going to miss the opportunity to build 
all of those key character strengths that young people need when they're 35. Mm -hmm. We want them to be compassionate, to be caring, to be committed to justice, to be collaborative, to be hardworking, to have grit, to have tenacity, to be creative. These are the things we want. And how do we parent in this way? First, we model, model, model. And modeling doesn't mean being perfect, right? It's again, it's like being that duck on the water. The duck gliding on the water might look perfect, but it doesn't teach the child as much as when we show how intentionally we are working to be a good person, how we are struggling within ourselves with our impulses that might guide us to not be the ideal person, right? Mm -hmm. um, we show them the work we're doing and that is how we build good character. But it's, it's also by this, I hope Don that the parents listening are getting how much this all ties together to what we're talking about so far. Mm -hmm. Because in seeing all that is good in writing your child, their generosity, their compassion, their caring, their incredible sensitivity. We are supporting those character strengths that we have. And when they stray, as human beings tend to do, we bring them back to the strengths that we see in them. And that's how character gets developed. Mm -hmm. And to, uh, I like what you say about thinking in terms of the 35-year-old that you hope that your child will be and that you want your child to be and parent towards that. And, and one thing for sure that that means is allowing our 14-year-old to fail at times because sometimes when we're protecting them for failure, what we're really doing is protecting ourselves from the consequences of their failure or how we think it's going to reflect on us. So, amen. So that is so true. But you're also sending another message. When you catastrophize when a young person fails, the message that is being sent is that uh, I don't trust in your ability to stand back up. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And instead, we talk about opportunities for growth. We share how we have failed um, in our lives and how sometimes like everything that is good about us is because we took a different path in the road or mm -hmm. we grew from a difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And this is probably a great segue into another one of your uh, uh, themes that you come back to over and over in, in much of your work is how we can create resiliency in our young people and, 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 and by creating it in our young people, we're creating it for ourselves and, and for our country and for our world because they are our future. So let's uh, talk about how we build resiliency, in, in particular, how it relates to our uh, adolescents. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about it this entire conversation. I, I just want to make sure that people get that because the bottom line of young people being able to be resilient, to be able to bounce, to be able to thrive in good times and revive from difficult times is having an adult who believes in them without condition and who holds them to high expectations. Mm -hmm. Let's break this down. So an adult, who is that person ideally? Ideally, 
it's the parenting figure in someone's life, mm-hmm. ideally. Um, and But sometimes when a young person doesn't have that person able to be there, the rest of us are completely vital in, in their lives. And who believes in someone unconditionally. You know, that people can get really tripped up on that because people can think that what that means is like that you're supposed to say to your daughter, it's okay if you do drugs, darling. And that's not what we're talking about. That's not Good. unconditional <laughs> belief. That's foolishness, right? Unconditional belief says, I'm not going anywhere, right? You can stumble in front of me. And I'm still going to stand by your side. And high expectations and hold kids to high expectations. What does that mean? Is that about straight A's or about being coming the quarterback or getting the trophy? Absolutely not. It's all about what we've been talking about, the character strengths that a kid inherently has. I would say that the most protective force in a human being's life is to be seen in all of your goodness by someone. Think about it. Think about, you know, tweens. What's your biggest fear for your tween? It's that they're going to be bullied because the reality of being 14 is your friends change by the day of the week. Mm -hmm. And sometimes your friends turn on you. And that is really hard. And you can feel like that is a catastrophe. But what is it that grounds you? It's when someone sees you exactly as you are and thinks you're wonderful. Mm -hmm. That, That is the essence of what builds resilience. But there's so many other things we can do. You know, I have in my book, Building Resilience in Children and Teens, we have, you know, we put forth the seven C's model, which, you know, I could give you, mm-hmm. but in a nutshell, it is, um, it begins with having confidence. And where do kids gain confidence from? It's us recognizing, celebrating, and building on their next C, which is competencies. The next C is human connection, which, gosh, we've been talking about this whole time, Don. Mm-hmm. Then we talk about character, right? Um, now what we want to talk about as well is coping, right? We want to talk about um, kids being able to take control over their choices. Control is another one of the Cs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why? Why taking control over their choices is rooted in their ability to cope. If, if, if your readers or listeners go to the Center for Parent and Teen Communication, they go to the section for teens and they um, download or go to our stress reduction plan, we guide young people to take control over their lives by choosing to cope in a healthy way. Everything you fear, Don, about your adolescence, Um, doing something wrong, whether it's drugs or sex or bullying or cutting, it's all about coping with a stressful life. Mm -hmm. Telling kids what not to do literally has never worked. What does work is telling them what to do when life gets hard. And Mm -hmm. we really put out this information in the center for young people to learn what to do when Mm -hmm. life gets hard. And the last C is contribution. And this also gets back to character. It's all tied together. When a young person knows that they're meaningful in other people's lives because they contribute to their lives, that is deeply protective. Because when you know you matter to other people, 
it makes it much easier for you to be able to bounce through difficult times. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, please do us a favor. We are trying to increase the number of comments we have. Uh, our rankings, I'll, we will accept either uh, a star ranking or a comment uh, about this podcast. Uh, that's how iTunes, as well as some of the other podcast apps, know whether to suggest and how they rank and, and whether you know, whether we appear and when somebody is looking and how we are found and things like that. So we would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and if you would either give us a star ranking or if you're feeling particularly generous, you could uh, write a comment or so, uh, I would really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, so would everybody at our staff here at Creating a Family. So thanks a lot. Now back to the show. I see a lot of parents not expecting their children, their teens uh, or tweens, uh, to do much. They feel like that they are burdening them, that they should not have chores. They should not be helping out. What are your, what's your theory on that? What's your thinking on that? I want my kids to know that they matter. Knowing they matter has multiple levels. They matter to the family. They matter to the healthy functioning family. They matter to the community and they matter to me. Telling them that I don't think you should be involved in the life of the family, the life of the neighborhood or the life of the community to me is saying you don't matter. And so I think that it backfires. Um, but this is actually a perfect example of thinking about parenting. Um, because what happens is there are very few evil parents out there. And the parent who is trying to spare their child by saying you have so much on your mind, you're burdened, and therefore you don't have to do much in the, in the family to contribute, is doing it with the very best of intentions. I don't condemn that parent. I invite them to reconsider, however, and to understand that young people need to know that we need them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that I think that sometimes that one of the challenges for us parents is that one of the jobs of a parent is to work yourself out of a job. As you were talking at the very beginning about how children, one of their developmental tasks is to prepare to leave. One of the parental developmental tasks, it seems to me, is to prepare for our children to leave. Is that that's, you know, that means if, if you're going to define success as a parent, it means that your child is able to leave leave your nest and stand on their own and still be connected in some way at that point. Um, but I think that sometimes parents are fearful that if they expect too much, or they're so fearful that they're going to lose their role, that they keep, they keep themselves overly involved and, and not expecting things from their children. Um, I agree with you emphatically, and I'd like to go a step further. Uh, we fear the empty nest, right? Mm -hmm. And I want us to reframe this. So yes, your kid has to stand on their own, but your relationship doesn't end, it just changes. My girls are 25 now, and I don't have an empty nest. My children are in flight. They're living independent lives, but their relationship with me is actually as deep and as connected as it's ever been. And I'll tell you something, Don, they're my best friends. And if I told you that when they were 16, that would have been an unhealthy statement mm -hmm. because when they were 16, they didn't need a friend. They needed a guide. Mm -hmm. 
They needed someone who loved them, but who was a guide and who was willing to draw lines. Now that they're standing on their own, I don't have an empty nest. They're in flight and I see them so often. I'm going to see them in two hours, right? And uh, so, yeah, just don't fear them growing up. But when you hover, control, snowplow, helicopter, whatever word that people tend to like, then what happens is kids become smothered and then they do take flight and you will have an empty nest. So it backfires when you honor their independence. So have you heard my expression, become, be a lighthouse parent? Have you heard that, Don? I have. Yeah, so it, what it means basically is be like a lighthouse, a stable force on the shoreline from which your kid can measure themselves against. Look down at the rocks, make sure they don't crash into them. Look into the waves, um, trust that your kid's gonna ultimately learn how, how to navigate the waves, but prepare them to do so. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of parent that creates the healthiest long term relationships. Mm -hmm. This show, as well as all the many resources provided by Creating a Family at our website, creatingafamily.org, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners who not only believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre and post adoptive foster and kinship families, but they believe in that mission so much that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. One such partner is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international adoption home studies, and post adoption and foster to adopt programs. You can find them and get more information about them at vistadelmar.org. Okay, now let's throw in the whole uh, component of parenting children who have experienced stress, trauma. Um, through Many of our kids come to us through, either they are our foster children, and just the essence of, of the reason they have been removed is, is presenting problems and has presented stress and trauma in their lives. But even many of our adopted kids are adopted from either foster care or international, where they also had uh, hard beginnings in life and trauma. And, and so how does all of that impact how we parent both uh, when our, how we parent our adolescents? So Dawn, as you know, but most of your listeners probably don't know that um, trauma-sensitive practices are actually my specialty and that I work with young people who have uh, enduring homelessness. Um, and I've been doing that work for 37 years. Um, so this is my major life focus. And what I would say is that absolutely everything we've spoken about so far absolutely applies, just with a different level of intensity. So the first thing that you need to know is that the brain does get wired differently when you've been exposed mm -hmm. to trauma. The great news is that adolescence gives you an opportunity to rewire the brain. It really does. But as a parent who is parenting a child uh, or raising a child who has experienced trauma, understand that you can buffer them from that past. You can absolutely make things better, 
even if you may not be able to erase all of the consequences of their early childhood. So I don't want you having a guilt trip over certain behaviors that arise that are embedded deep in the brain, but nor do I want you to have a sense of helplessness that you can't change um, rapidly. And excuse, I didn't mean rapidly, that you can't change during adolescence. So let's talk about the brain and what happens. This is gonna be graphic, but it's gonna hopefully help us understand this. You get born, a child gets born, and then they make a sound. The and that sound says that they need nurturance or nourishment. The mother takes out a breast. And when that happens repeatedly, the child's brain lays down a pathway that says, I have a need and it was met. And they feel safe and secure. But if that mother or early childhood situation was not able to uh, respond to the child asking for nurturance or nourishment, what does the child do next? They cry. And if this happens repeatedly, the brain adapts. In other words, it creates a brain pathway that says, in order to get attention, I need to cry. Suppose the mother or father still does not respond. Then the child screams. And when the child learns that the only way, or the baby, infant, learns the only way to get attention is through screaming, the brain pathway gets laid down that says, in order to get what I need, I need to react, to act out. But suppose they still don't get it. Mm -hmm. Suppose they're in an orphanage in another country and they still don't get it. What happens? They give up and they learn to self-stimulate because the only thing that they need to do is to take care of themselves. So can we make all of this go away? No, but I'm the resilience guy, right? And so mm -hmm. anything I say that's bad news or scary is usually gonna be followed by the good news. Otherwise, it's not what I talk about. And the good news is astounding because adolescence in particular is a time of astoundingly rapid brain development. So we can change brain pathways. So a kid who has learned early in their life that their emotions were denigrated or denied or not paid attention to, what do we do? We do the opposite. We celebrate, we elevate, we process their emotions. We let them know that feeling is good and that the way to get through feelings is to connect with other human beings. Because as individuals, we are like fragile sticks, but as groups, we are like a bundle of sticks stronger than our individual parts, right? We teach that. And when a kid has learned that adults don't give them safety and they need to take care of themselves, we double down by making them feel safe. We double down by knowing, helping them know that we will be involved. And when we do this repeatedly, over and over again, then what happens is the brain pathways change and young people can learn to trust again. Young people can learn to feel secure again. This is true, this is science, but I don't want it to be read by people as it's easy or that it's complete, because it's neither easy nor complete, but it can make things better. We never give up. We use the one thing that we do have, which is the power of loving, respectful, kind, attentive interactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. Uh, 
at the um, and and also even if you are not the child's parent, but you are the child's foster parent, you can still have that role in that child's life. Oh my goodness! The 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 thing that I just said to you is the same thing I would say to the staff at a homeless at a shelter mm -hmm. taking care of people who are enduring homelessness. It's the same thing I would say to a teacher. This is about adults. But if you're a foster parent, you have that much closer, mm -hmm. that much more of a safe, secure, and sustained relationship. But if you're a foster parent, let me say something else. When these behaviors arise, the first thing you need to do is separate yourself from the behavior and stop thinking that it's about you. Mm -hmm. Don't take it personally. <laughs> because if yes. you think it's about you, then what will happen is you will become defensive Mm -hmm. And then you will push kids away because you'll be angry. Mm -hmm. But if you, under, if you change that lens, as Sandy Bloom would say, from what's wrong with this child to something happened to this child, then you understand that their behavior isn't about you. And that takes away that deeply personal stuff that's going to make you mess up. Mm -hmm. And when you know it's not about you, you can hold the pain. You can move them to a healthier place despite the fact that you may never get them to the place you hoped they would be, but they'll get to a better place mm -hmm. because you held their emotions you, and you were able to be with them because you didn't personalize them. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the Harvard Center for the Developing Child has a, I don't know if they use this term, but we have interpreted that some of their sayings uh, to use the term, the power of one. Uh, what young people are children as well, but in this case, since we're talking about teens and tweens, what they need is one. They need one adult in their life. The lucky ones have more than one, but what they really need is one. They need one adult in their life to do all the things that you've talked about, to believe in them, to be to believe in their fundamental goodness and to recognize their goodness. Uh, it's, it's just so powerful, isn't it? Absolutely. So I love the work that that center puts out. But it all comes back to the original people who developed the um, five C's model. I, I expanded it to seven C's. But Rick Little, who was really one of the founders of kind of the positive youth development movement, what he said is that every young person needs someone who is irrationally in love with them. Oh, I right? love that. One person who's irrationally in love with them. And then a person I admire ever so deeply, Richard Lerner, who was also in that original crew. Like, so that began from a really spiritual place, that statement by Rick Little, one that I, you know, formulated my life and my career, you know, so much of what I've done. But Rich, Richard Lerner has actually proven it, right? He has proven that um, these uh, C's, when they're present in young people's lives, make a difference. We can restore young people to being their best selves. And that mm -hmm. is all about character. Character mm -hmm. is a word that we should all be striving towards. We mm -hmm. all want people to become their very best selves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and not just for ourselves, but for our child, but for ourselves, for our society, for the world, just for every reason we, we want, to, we want to, to do this. But most importantly, for the, the person that we are irrationally in love with, which is our child. 
Right. And the last thing that uh, I want to explore with you is that interesting period where it seems like we're actually extending it in our society. It used to be that when kids, you know, we, we had the, the period between 18 and 21 that we thought that was kind of the the launching and then they were launched. But I think that that's often a, a, a landmine for parents. And now it's even longer. But, Many parents don't think of their children as launching and on their own until well into their uh, late twenties and sometimes even early thirties. But that's a whole another discussion. But the uh, any words of wisdom for parents for the the child who is in the launch mode and 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 is how do we handle some of the issues and the anxieties that come up then? Because we want them to launch, as we talked about before. That is our job. But we, we want them to still have a tether, uh, as you have described with, with your girls coming back or your children coming back. Development is a process, not an event. Let me say that again. Development is a process, not an event. If I could get rid of the concept of your being a child when you're 17 years old and 364 days, and you are an adult when you're 18 years old and one day, I mean, that is absurd. Right. I am like around the corner from 60 and I'll tell you, Don, I'm still developing. Right. We hope we all do. Right. Right. Development is something that requires nurturance and human connection and trial and error and feedback from other people. And um, when we make our kids think, of course, we honor their independence and we launch them into adulthood. But of course we're gonna remain connected. Our relationships will change, but human beings need connection and feedback. And we have to stop making people so terrorized from that launching pad, right? Mm -hmm. We have to kind of um, make them understand that this is a first step, there's a journey, and the people who love you will be with you and continue to be with you. Mm Mm-hmm. Beautifully said, as always. Thank you so much, Dr. Ken Ginsberg, uh, with the uh, Center for Parent and Teen Communication. I, I always feel uplifted when I talk to you, and I so appreciate you. Thank you. It's a joy and an honor to spend time with you, and thank you so much, Don, for all the work you do. Ah, good. Thank you. And let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional.